0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu
1: Trulch comes along and he says Deltie's all wet Uh, he doesn't fundamentally disagree with his conception of the modern era namely this idea of freedom and this idea of this this anti-authoritarian notion. But Troltz just says, you've got your facts wrong, Diltie. The Reformation was essentially very authoritarian. Not unlike the Church of the Middle Ages. Uh, Troltz rejected Dilty's notion that the Reformation was the religious expression of the Renaissance. For him... At its core, the Reformation was more medieval than modern. I should say, too, that that Trolls does admit uh, there are some elements of truth in Deltie's viewpoint. Uh, There are some liberating things that occurred as a result of the advent of Protestantism. And so he's willing to concede that. But he says at core, at, at the essence of what the Reformation was all about is that it was still very, very authoritarian. That the Reformation, and Luther's Reformation in particular, was conservative and authoritarian. He just put them under another bondage. And he called it bibliocracy. He took, he says that that, that Trolls does that what happened is that the reformers still wanted to regulate life just as much as the medieval church did witness Calvin's Geneva where they had people uh, scrutinizing the behavior of of the citizens if you didn't attend church attend church regularly somebody would report you and you have to then appear before the consistory and be asked these very painful questions like Why weren't you in church? That kind of thing. So, there was a change, Trolls admits, but it was not a change from authoritarianism to freedom. It was a change from one kind of authoritarianism, namely the church, to another kind of authoritarianism, namely the Bible. And he called that Bibliocracy, rule by the Bible instead of rule by the church. So he thinks, Trolsch does, that the medieval spirit still sweeps through the thinking of the reformers. It's still essentially medieval. And it's not, says Trolsch, until the enlightenment of the late middle, late 17th century and all of the 18th century that one finds this this move out, this full uh, rejection of authoritarianism. Both the Bible and the church. Neither one of these guys really understands the essence of the Reformation. Uh, they are looking at this. I mean, Trolls was something of a sociologist. uh, uh, uh Looking at religion And how it affected people And he felt that there was still This authoritarian structure Under which people had to function In this life And that authoritarian structure Was the Bible That is to say That there are certain obligations That if you call yourself a Christian If you call yourself a Protestant Christian That you should act In this general way The Bible sits in judgment Of the way you live your life You don't have the freedom In his meaning of the term To do whatever you want there's still this authority in your life that governs and rules and guides your life somehow. But you're right. Uh, these guys would not be called evangelicals. Okay? Good point. Uh, just one little addendum here when, it, when you talk about the difference between the modern era and the medieval era. History is it's kind of like a river that flows, and it's always sort of moving. And so it's always very, very difficult to distinguish the beginning and the end of a period and the beginning of another period. There's, a, there's some gray area between when the Middle Ages ended and the modern era began. I think that's that has to be said. And, and I don't think that's simply my opinion. I think that's right. And if you press a good historian, they will tell you that it's very difficult to draw any hard and fast lines and say the Middle Ages ends right here and the modern era begins here. All kinds of assumptions are involved in those kinds of decisions. Uh, what you believe, what you mean by, by freedom, what you mean by authority, what you mean by modern. All of those things uh, involve certain kinds of assumptions. Uh, But I think it is fair to say, uh, if I were to render a general judgment, that probably the 16th century has more in common with the Middle Ages, the 13th century, than the 16th century has in common with the 18th century. So if you want to use those kinds of comparisons, I'll put it in other words. It seems to me, generally speaking, recognizing there's some gray area here, that probably the distinctive features of the Protestant Reformation have more in common with the Middle Ages than they do with the 18th century Enlightenment. That's my best judgment.
0: And what comes to your mind when
1: you make that conclusion? Well, I'm thinking about... Well, let's just take the basic idea of authority. Okay? Uh, In the Enlightenment, there is a real move away from all religious authority. Reason is crowned king, not the Bible and not Christianity. Christianity is somehow judged in terms of its rationality. I'll talk more specifically about that later. Uh, That's a, a, a dramatic difference between the way the Reformers thought... They still acknowledged fundamental authority. And they shared that. their differences, but they still shared that basic notion that authority, that God has imposed an authority on mankind. And, that, and the Middle Ages believed that as well. Now, they, they put their stress on Scripture and tradition, church. Uh, the, the Protestants put it on primarily the Bible, although they had their church too. So in my general judgment, it seems to me that the Reformation probably has more in common with the Middle Ages than it does with the Enlightenment. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who disagree with me on that. Uh, But that's an opinion that I give, and I think I'd be willing to debate just about anybody on that. Uh, Because I I do think that one could probably press on and, and give lots of examples of how... I mean, if you're, it it, it it is a very important divide. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm making some decisions here uh, for, for for pedagogical purposes. I'm I'm being artificial here. I'm artificially making a line of depart a line of this demarcation so that we can see that there are different periods. But I'm 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 qualifying that by talking. There's this gray area as well. But this is a very good point. 1648 it, it is it, I still think it is a, it is a crucial point and is a harbinger an indicator of a new era beginning to emerge uh, no one doubts no one doubts that the Enlightenment was modern I mean it really does exhibit all of the characteristic features and I'll mention some of those a little later of a, of a new era in history. The only question is, does the modern age begin here? And I think that it certainly uh, certainly is modern. One of the things, if you look at modern uh, church history, modern historical uh, thinking, it's interesting that when you go to a university or to look at where they locate their classes on Reformation, what they've done is they have reclassified the Reformation and now you have classes not so much on the Reformation but classes on what they call early modern Europe and so they have they try to sort of split the difference between Dilti and Trolsch uh, it's it's the early early part but it's the modern period uh, they probably lean a little more toward Dilti I guess in all of this but the Reformation is is now in most curriculums called early modern European studies. Unless you go to Oxford. <laughs> in Oxford, everything after the fourth century is modern. Literally. They have faculty. they have two faculties of history, the faculty of ancient history and modern history. And everything after the fourth century is considered modern history. They are very antiquated in their ways. Oh, that's that distinction saying early, early modern history that
0: they want to downplay the aspect
1: of religion? It's because they really don't know how to resolve <laughs> the problem of where the modern era began, I think. So
0: yes. if you thought
1: about the Reformation and the... Yes. If you go to a Western Civilization course, undergraduate, required in most universities, uh, they will begin... The period they call the modern era with the Reformation, usually. Probably the Renaissance Reformation period. They probably spend more time on the Renaissance than they do the Reformation. Because the Renaissance and the Reformation are basically simultaneous. Uh, At least the latter part of the Renaissance overlaps with the beginning of the Reformation period. Oh, yeah. Uh, And see, and part of this has to do with how you understand the Renaissance. Because the Renaissance was seen as the first budding of, of, uh, of, of, a, of a humanism that said man is the measure of all things. That uh, uh, they point to different people. And they, they, Jacob Burkhart is a guy who wrote a book called the Renaissance back in the late 19th century and it really pervaded all studies, all interpretations of the Renaissance. And he saw the Renaissance as essentially a secular movement. Now, in the last 30 years, new research has been done and so the Renaissance has been, people are rethinking that. And and I would argue that the Renaissance was far more religious than we have thought hitherto. If you look at people like Michelangelo, who's considered, you know, an archetypical Renaissance painter, what you discover is that he, he had deep religious passions and was involved in a number of reformist kinds of people. Not very well known, but he was. And, in fact, may have been uh, something of a Catholic reformer. At least had sympathies in that direction. Uh, so all these, these really fine distinctions that people used to have are now increasingly cloudy. Uh, but for, for the purposes of most uh, Western civ classes, uh, they're not really up on their stuff. And they tend to, to uh, talk about the Renaissance as a purely secular kind of movement. The Reformation is a religious expression of that, this liberation, this freedom from authoritarianism has essentially won out, I think, in, in modern classification of, of history. Okay. What happened after the Reformation? A couple of things happened. Uh, you, have, you have the first factor of all this religious warfare and people are tired of it. So now people are not looking to rel- they want to be religiously neutral. But there are two other things that happened, and I'll mention them briefly, that moved Europe in a more secular direction, a direction that did not need to rely quite so much on religious authority. Two things. First, the scientific revolution. The work of Copernicus, Galileo, and Newton uh, gave men a new kind of confidence. I'll say a little more about this later. But there was a major revolution in the 17th century, and going, moving on to the 18th, called the Scientific Revolution. There was this enormous confidence in the human intellect to solve the problems of the universe. That's the first revolution that occurred after the Reformation and moved uh, this mood toward a more secular view. And the second revolution is associated with René Descartes, 1596 to 1650 Descartes is is a major person in uh, understanding this mood swing in Europe now Descartes himself was a a fairly devout Catholic from what I understand Uh, but what he did uh, changed European thinking fundamentally and what he did is this and I want you to get this Descartes made doubt the first principle of philosophy. Say that again. Descartes made doubt and doubting the first principle of philosophy. And it became the model for all of, the, of scientific inquiry. So, one of, so Descartes and the scientific revolution uh, complemented each other. A word about this idea of making doubt your first principle. Descartes' notion called methodological doubt, or me- excuse me, method methodical doubt. That means that as a, as a principle, you begin first by doubting everything until you find something which cannot be doubted. That's a general summary statement of his principle of his uh, mo- his process called methodical doubt. You begin if you want to investigate some sort of problem, then you begin by doubting everything that you can until you come to something you cannot doubt. And for Descartes, the one thing he could not doubt was this idea: "Cogito, ergo sum." I think, therefore I am. This idea that that I am a thinking being. I can doubt all I want, but even the process of doubting is thinking. Therefore, I must exist. You follow my, my thinking here? Descartes' thinking? To doubt is to think, and to think is to exist. And so that becomes his first principle. Doubting. Doubt everything you can, until you find something you can't doubt. For him, it was the fact that he was thinking. And then from that that point where he establishes his own existence, then he moves to talking about and thinking about God's existence. And so Descartes was a theist. And he went on. But that's how he built his system. It began with doubt. Now, this is a profound idea. If your first principle is not like it used to be in 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 the reformation you begin with God or the Bible or, or Christianity that's your first principle that that's a that's a, a fundamental starting point with Descartes no longer are those fundamental starting points the starting point is you and your doubt you see the intellectual shift here it's profound it's, it's a philosophical revolution. And it's, and it's a revolution in the sense that he does not start with uh, the assumption as a first principle that God exists. He starts rather with his own doubt. So God is replaced with doubt as a first principle. Do you see how radical a shift that is? That's the point. So these two movements, the scientific revolution, one which fed the other, to be sure. Because what does a scientist do? He looks at the, at the individual evidence, and he doesn't think about, he, he, he doubts something until it can be proven valid. So Descartes and the scientific revolution were very complementary, and they helped bring about this shift in the way people thought about their world and about themselves, There is a transformation that takes place in the late 17th century about how man views himself and how man views his surrounding circumstances. If we're trying to be more technical about what the Enlightenment is from a historical perspective... What we normally say, if you look in the history books and and they talk about the Enlightenment, they're talking about the period from the end of the Thirty Years' War, 1648, to uh, the French Revolution. Those are the two major historical events. In between, it's generally understood that's when the Enlightenment occurred, between on the one end, the Thirty Years' War, 1648 and the French Revolution, 1789 and following, the end of the 18th century. Between these two events lay the Enlightenment. Uh, I want to start off and try to talk about a definition of the Enlightenment. Uh, it's very, very difficult to find a complete definition of the Enlightenment. Uh, so. Any definition, be aware, any definition that I give will be incomplete. But I'm going to attempt what I call a working definition. A working definition of the Enlightenment. It goes something like this. The Enlightenment is a self-conscious break with traditional values and authority producing a new intellectual climate. It's a self-conscious break with traditional values and authority, producing a new intellectual climate in which reason was enthroned. It is a self-conscious break with traditional values and authority, Producing a new intellectual climate in which reason was enthroned. Do we have that? Shall I repeat it again? A self-conscious break with traditional values and authority. Producing a new intellectual climate in which reason is enthroned. One of the things we need to note about the Enlightenment, still in introduction here, is that the principal figures of this intellectual movement come from all kinds of different nationalities, different social backgrounds, and different academic disciplines. Nationalities of some of the principal figures come from places like France, England, Germany, Scotland, and Italy. Different nationalities. Some come from the noble classes. Some even come from the emerging middle classes. Very few come from the peasant classes. These primary figures of the Enlightenment uh, are not confined to one particular discipline or occupation, but they are involved in a range of disciplines, such as literature, political theory, economics philosophy and religion so it's a group it's an idea it's it's a mood that pervades social strata nationalities and professions these are not simply academics who advocate this enlightenment idea it is not simply clerics if you will who as one group advocating this it's a whole range Despite all of these differences, they shared a commitment to intellectual freedom and a belief that tradition, especially traditional religious authority, was an obstacle to human progress despite all the differences in nationality, social strata, strata, they shared a commitment to intellectual freedom and a belief that tradition is bad. it hinders us. <laughs> intellectual climate, the climate. Emmanuel Kant uh, probably comes closest to capturing the essence of the Enlightenment in an article he wrote entitled "Vasist Alf Aufklärung? Spelled up here. Published in 1784. "Vasist Alf Aufklärung? Which means What is Enlightenment? And In this article he answered the question that he raised. What is the Enlightenment? He answered Sapere Aude. Dare to know. Sapere Aude. Dare to know. So Kant. Immanuel Kant. That's why I put these two titles under his name. Kant was saying have the courage to make use of your own understanding, your own reason, without the guidance of others or tradition. Have the courage to make use of your own understanding. Dare to step out and to trust yourself. That's what he means by separi. audi. Have the courage to make use of your own abilities and talents. Well, uh, Carl Becker is a very eminent historian. And he says that if you want to understand a particular era, if you want to get to the inner spirit of a new age, he said you should look for, and he says, quote, certain unobtrusive words. Look for characteristic words that are used by advocates of this new movement. So what I want to do is look at some of these unobtrusive characteristic words that you will find among advocates and I misspelled characteristics, so don't point don't point out my mistake. Certain characteristic words that that indicate something of the spirit of the age of enlightenment. Okay. The first word that is very characteristic, this is a word that was actually used by advocates of the Enlightenment. The word autonomy. Uh, I've already alluded to this, but it's very clear that characteristic of Enlightenment thinking is this idea of rejecting authoritarianism of any sort. It's a rejection of authority. Further, it is not only a rejecting of traditional authority, it is looking to individual conscience to replace that traditional authority. So we talk about autonomy. What we mean is to be self-governed. Autos, self. Nomes, law self-law, self-governing is the basic idea of autonomy. I know best is another way of saying that. And so what is characteristic, a characteristic word employed by advocates of the enlightenment ideals is this word autonomy by which they meant two basic things. One, rejection of traditional authority and a turning to individual conscience to replace that traditional authority. The self replaces, individual conscience replaces authority. I think, Karen, just to to elaborate on your your earlier comment in the break, uh, one might look at this in terms of something that Luther did as well. uh, Because he did point people to the conscience I mean what did he do he was a man who wrestled himself as an individual and was led to the conclusion that the church that the traditional authority was wrong and so some have argued that what Luther did is enthrone individual conscience <laughs> <laughs> yes yes uh, Luther did wrestle, but you recall that even though he asked that question, he answered it by saying, yes. Well, maybe so. It, but it's, it's nevertheless, nevertheless, a uh, it is argued at least, that's a significant departure. I mean, most people in the Middle Ages wouldn't think that way. They wouldn't answer that question, even though he was nervous to do it. I mean, the, the physical circumstances uh, were pretty nerve wracking to begin with, uh, and that may have a, had a lot to do with his trembling. Uh, but but the, but he does, in his in his own thinking, he does follow his own individual conscience, which he argues is, is led by the Holy Spirit, and in accord with the Scriptures. Uh, but some have argued that I think that's that's too simple. To simply say he is exalting individual conscience, uh, if, if we mean by that to suggest that uh, that Luther is rejecting all authority, period, and, and setting the the individual as the final authority, Luther did not intend to do that. He wanted to make the Bible the final authority, and as he talked about this at, at Worms, for example, it's always uh, it's he's rejecting one authority but still abiding by biblical authority. And the reason he rejects the other authority, the traditional uh, church authority, is because he believes in the authority of the Bible. So it's not a rejection of authority. It's 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 a it's a different kind of authority. Anyway, one of the characteristic words and features of the Enlightenment is the idea of autonomy. My conscience is my guide. Not the church, not the Bible, but my individual conscience. The phrase, let your conscience be your guide, is a very Enlightenment kind of phrase. The ideal of the Enlightenment is we are not to entertain any belief unless it can be warranted by rational evidence. This is another way of saying that man is his own final standard. He now becomes the arbiter of truth. Let your conscience be the guide. This is the final standard. It is, as I see it, a certain declaration of independence. I don't need the church to tell me what to do anymore. I can make up my own mind. Earlier standards of authority, the Bible, the church, and even the state uh, are now subject to my final authority, of my individual conscience. I mean, this whole idea of the state, incidentally. I mean, what was the French Revolution about? What was the American Revolution about? It was saying, my individual rights take precedent over the structure of the state. They I want. I mean, that's a very broad statement, and I understand that. But there is that element in it. It is. It is a, a decision that we, as individuals, as a collection of individuals, we reject this, the authority of the state. Who was the technical uh, uh, s- state ruled over the, 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 the colonies? It was England? they had legal authority. So, autonomy is one of the key words. Another key word, and perhaps the most important word, is the idea of reason. The 18th century is sometimes described as the age of reason. And that's appropriate because intellectuals at this period sought to submit all of the important questions to the test of of reason. Uh, a quick distinction here: there is a distinction between deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. Uh, do you know what I mean when I say that? Should I explain it for a moment? Let me explain it. Deductive reason is reasoning from the general to the particular. Deductive reasoning begins with an assumption and then tries to see if it can be justified by the evidence. So deductive reasoning begins with a grand assumption and then tries to see if that assumption can be justified by then going after the evidence. Inductive reasoning begins, hopefully tries to without, without any assumptions, looking at the bits and pieces of evidence and then based upon that evidence then reaching a conclusion it's reasoning from the particular to the general what we find in the kind of reason that's been talked about in the enlightenment is inductive reasoning trying to not have any assumptions although everybody always does they thought of themselves as not having assumptions but simply looking at the pieces and then reaching legitimate conclusions. That's the kind of reason that they are particularly uh, concerned with. And it's this kind of inductive reasoning in which they have faith that allows them to, to determine what is true and what is false. It's this idea of using inductive reason to determine truth from falsehood. Reason, particularly inductive reason, was this immutable, universal truth that could lead you to distinguishing true from false. Ignorance of reason, they argued, led to suffering and misfortune. James Livingston writes, Reason... Could cast its light into the darkness of superstition and ignorance, and bring man true enlightenment and happiness. So reason would bring about enlightenment. You could enlightenment. Does this have any? Does this make you think about the Garden? Truth. What is truth and light? What is truth and falsehood? The ability to discern good and evil. This this has all kinds of interesting images that are flooding my mind here. But I think there are some interesting parallels for Christians. But there's this enlightenment. And reason is the thing that leads you. Your own reason. Your own ability to take the bits and pieces out there and determine yourself what's right and wrong. What's true and false. And that will bring you happiness. Third one is optimism. They use this word, the age of reason. Uh, one of the basic ideas is that if you use your reason wisely, if you reject those traditional authorities, if you are your own authority, and if you use your reason, your inductive reason rightly, it will create all kinds of. Uh, uh, it, will, it will result in an optimistic attitude about what can be accomplished in this world. A Leibniz was the one who said, this is the best of all possible worlds. Do you sense that optimism there? The best of all possible worlds. Now, not everybody shared that optimism. But it's this idea that, that we can do it. We can change things if we just use our reason.
0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.